0: Let's continue praying. Lord, we just, every time we think of it, are stunned by the love that you showed us by coming to set us free. And not just that, but you didn't leave us here, you, you brought your presence into our lives and into this place. And Lord, we pray that that would be true and a real life experience for every person that is here today because that's what you want to have happen. And I pray that for anybody that is here today that doesn't know that freedom, doesn't know that forgiveness and the love that you want to give them, that this would be the day that whatever's said from your word or something, that your Holy Spirit would work in their lives. And for all of us, that you would work in our lives in such a way that whatever we carry in here that keeps us from seeing that you're here, that your presence is here, because that's what it's all about, you, you. You're the one that's done all this. And we want to honor you and love you with that and love you back because you first loved us. But any, anything that's in the way or any reasons why we think we're here that aren't the true reasons, Lord, I just pray that you'd show them to us today. And I pray that you would make this a day where we go, you know what? I learned why I really need to be there. Jesus showed me by the power of his Holy Spirit. And we will not refuse your call We've prayed the prayer, we've made that commitment, and that is why we ask you to be here in a way and open up your word to us today. It's in your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're in the second episode of this devoted series, and uh, let me just review real quick where we were last week, so we're all on the same page. Um, and what we've been looking at, or what we are going to look at, and are looking at, is uh, Acts chapter 2 verse 42 because it tells us some very simple things at the very beginning of what is known as the church or uh, uh, the early Christians. They didn't call themselves Christians at the time. They called themselves followers of the way because Jesus said he's the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus is the way. So they said, we're the way. Okay? So that's that's how they uh, worked that out. But there were four very simple things, four very straightforward things uh, that they did and that they practiced continually uh, that they were devoted to. And this, this This idea of devotion, we discovered, is all through the Bible. It's all over the Old Testament, for example, especially like in the Psalms. David says uh, that the zeal for your house uh, just consumes me, okay? And that's in Psalm 69. And in his day, they thought that the temple, that place, and they viewed that as the place where God resided. So his presence, it, he was just consumed with experiencing that presence. And and, and he says the same thing in uh, Psalm 84, where he says, better is one day in your house than a thousand days elsewhere. Like, this is the best thing ever, being in your presence, God. And it had to do with that temple. Well, in the New Testament, after uh, the, the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus, it makes it, the New Testament makes it clear that the, the temple's not the residing place of God anymore. That's not where his presence is. The temple now is not a place, it's people, it's us. It's when we're all together. That's where it is. And so that's where we experience the presence. That's what's supposed to happen when, when we're together, whether it's be two or three, Jesus says, or, or uh, you know, 200 or whatever it is. And um, Paul picks up that theme a little later, and says the same thing. He says, because of that, this, the devotion of the people that he was ministering with, people like the people in Philippians, and the, or the, in, in uh, Philippi, uh, where he talks about them in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. Because it's a natural progression. That's exactly what happens. When you give yourself to the Lord, then you give yourself to his people. And There's no distinction. There's no, no uh, tearing those two things apart according to the New Testament. And um, then we looked at the fact that they're devoted to these four things. And, and the first thing that they were devoted to was the apostolic teaching. And what we mentioned was that was the gospel. That was Jesus Christ. Okay, He is the gospel. It's the good news of being set free from our sins by the, sin and, or by the uh, death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, but from the power of sin and death to be set free. But that's just the beginning. Because when Jesus came, he was also setting up his kingdom. He was saying, okay, there's a new ruler in the world. I'm taking back what, what, the, the, the rulership of this world. And he, and he was starting to, to see this. They were starting to see this new thing that God was doing in the world. And they were starting to see the world in a whole different way. And it wasn't because they disciplined themselves to see it that way. Nobody has that kind of discipline. It was because they were so grateful for uh, being set free, like we just sa- sang about, from our sin and death. But that just issued into a whole other way of seeing or a, a worldview uh, that, that Jesus uh, had come to set up a kingdom, that he was there now by the power of his Spirit. And then, of course, they saw the Spirit come upon him, and it was just like, whoa, it just blew it all apart. And it, and it was way beyond their circumstances, because frankly, these are, their circumstances were not circumstances anybody would choose naturally. They had. We, we worry about religious freedom, which we've got now, but they had absolutely none. And, and they were being pushed around and shoved around, but that didn't seem to bother them. They became what we're talking about and what we're seeking to continue to become, and that is deeply devoted, resilient people of Jesus, the Jesus people, to live Jesus' way. And that's exactly what they became. Now, I, I mentioned to you an illustration of somebody early, early uh, in my life as a pastor. Uh, the first church I was at, his name was Duane, just happened to be Duane. And uh, what I didn't mention to you is that his wife, whom he married just shortly after that encounter, if you don't know what I'm talking about or you weren't here a second service uh, last week, uh, just, um, you know, listen to tape, but it's on there. But I, w- I won't go through that story. But his wife, whom he met uh, and married uh, within a year after that experience that I had with Duane, she too was a a believer in Jesus, and she was all in with Jesus, and she worked about 90 miles away in the big city, uh, and she would commute in here, and and, uh, she uh, had this office worker, this this co-worker come to her sometime in the next year after that or so, two years, and and came to her, and and this started happening to her a lot. I'm just using the first incident. This, this, This other lady came to her cubicle or whatever it was and said, hey, what is with you? And she said, excuse me? She said, you've got something that I don't have and I would like. And she said, well, I'm a Christian. And she explained the gospel to her. And she said, well, where do you find that? I said, well, I, 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 I go to church. Oh, okay. So the lady walks off. Two weeks later, she comes back and says, I did it. She said, you did what? I went to church this weekend and I gave my heart to Christ. <laughs> really? Oh, okay. And you know what's wild about that is that's that kind of presence, that thing that happens here and that happens in us. um, If we stopped right now and we had the time, and you know we're not going to do it, don't worry. But I bet you we could hear 200 examples of how Jesus has done that in people's lives, and could just it would just go on and on and on because that's exactly how it operates. Well, in in this early uh, set of believers, it was happening so often and so fast that it was an everyday occurrence. It was going on. In fact. There's something beautiful there that is still present with us. The author of Scripture is still at work in this way, and he's at work in us at Eastridge Church and, 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 and local churches all around us. He's still doing this thing, and, and it's, a, it's something that's beautiful, and it has to do with what the gospel does. Not just some, something to believe. It is something to believe, all right. It is a different worldview, all that. That's, that's correct. But it's actually something very practical and very real. And I found a summary of it. Uh, in, in, uh, in a paragraph out of a book uh, called The Gospel by Ray Ortland, He's a pastor, uh, I believe, in Tennessee. But look at, look at how he describes this. I don't know if I could describe this better. Look at this. Gospel doctrine creates gospel cultures called churches. So it's not just the doctrine. It's the culture that's created here. Where wonderful things happen to unworthy people for the glory of Christ alone but it doesn't end in our churches. A gospel defined is a prophetic sign that points beyond itself to a model home of the new neighborhood Christ is building for eternity. People can walk into that kind of church right now and see human beauty that will last forever. Such a church makes heaven real to people on earth. So remember Jesus prayed on on earth as it is in heaven? Guess what? We're it. Such a church makes heaven real to people on earth so that they can put their faith in Christ now while they still have the chance. Uh, to see the beauty of that, it's just stunning and so forth. And, 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 and what's, what's wild is these people were devoted to that. And, you, and, and and when you think about their situation, then you start to think about our situation, you kind of start to think, well, that's why I'm, I, I feel drawn to this. That's why it is, because that's something that's just in us, that God put on us. We Christians know the secret is that the image of God was put on us. We just long for that kind of community and that connection. And that's where we're going to go with next, or today. We're going to go to the next thing that these people were devoted to, and before we get there, I just want to throw two statements up on the screen. I've kind of done this, uh, this uh, kind of illustration before, but I, I'm going to do it a little different way. I want you to imagine that you hear this from your government. I don't think we're going to hear this from in our lifetime, although I will say this. I have friends, Christians in other parts of the world who have heard similar things from their governments. Okay? I know Christ- I know personally people, and maybe you do too. Who, who, who struggle and labor under these? And the question is: Is which of these two statements would be more disconcerting? Would be more disorienting? Would be more life invasive? Okay, let me just throw this up on the screen. The first one statement is this: You hear this from your government. All recreation activities, including viewing or participating in sports, movies, and TV or travel, will from now, from here on, no longer be allowed. That's particularly hard in certain college football seasons when things are going well. But, right? I mean, that, uh, travel? No. TV? No. Sports? Mm Mm-mm. Oh, boy, that's that's almost like saying you're a pagan or something. Anyway, how about this one? You will no longer uh, be allowed to gather with your church. You know, does that kind of... It should, should, but here's the crazy thing about both of those statements. For these people, as devoted as they were and what they were seeing God do in their midst, none of that mattered as much as what was really going on, what God was doing. None of it. Because they knew that just getting their rear in a certain seat, although they, they did it anyway, and they knew that, you know, all the other extremities of life and so forth didn't measure up to a hill of beans compared to what God was going to do through them and in them and what he was doing through them and in them. And one of the most powerful ways he did that was by their gathering together, their being together. And that's the next thing that they were devoted to. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the gospel, and to fellowship and to breaking of bread. We'll look at that next week into prayer. Now, what, what is fellowship? It's, it's an overused word. It's a misused word. It's, it's just, it, there's so much baggage with it. We got to start off by taking the baggage off, okay, uh, in terms of what fellowship is. It's kind of an old church word. It's been loaded up with things. I'm not saying we shouldn't use the word. It's a good word. It's just that we've kind of piled all kinds of stuff into it. Let me just say what it's not first. Let's take some baggage off. Fellowship is not just getting your rear in the seats on Sunday morning, okay? Don't get me wrong. We're glad you're here. It's, uh, it's something I'm compelling about uh, experiencing worship together and so forth, and that's, that's good and that's right. But that in and of itself isn't, um, and we'll see later that God wants us to be here, but that's not in and of itself fellowship. Another thing that fellowship is not is, and, and we have people that are really good at this, that help us, and their gift to us is so, such a blessing. Uh, I'm talking about the coffee and the stuff out in the lobby. But that in and of itself, donuts, are not, we don't have donuts today, don't get excited, but <laughs> coffee and donuts, that's not fellowship, per se. Now, I learn something every day, when I, every Sunday when I go to church, uh, partic- when I'm with the church. Um, and what I learned today is, is that gummy bears that are flipped by somebody else and stuck in your face, that might be fellowship, because that's closer than a brother or sister, getting their germs all over your face. But anyway, so, but those, you know, that eating, that is not, although we're gonna see that they ate together, next week. Thirdly, uh, the third thing that is not uh, necessarily fellowship is that a whole bunch of extroverts getting together and and hearing one guy, a particular extrovert, getting up front and talking really loud, okay? What I'm saying is, is, you know, sometimes I think uh, people feel like, well, you know, I'm not out there. I'm not really part of the church. I'm not an important part, but you are a valuable important part. You see, those of us who test out, um, As uh, you know, the Myers-Briggs or whatever kind of psychological who you're you're dealing with, Uh, you know, as as extreme extroverts or you know the bombastic loud people that talk like that, okay? We we tend to think that that's you know what what church is about, but that's not what church is about. In fact, I'll make a radical statement here just to try and encourage those of you who might be more on the introverted side of the scale. Number one, there are more introverts than extroverts around, and number two, God wouldn't have put us all together. if he didn 't want both, and number three, I think introverts have the ability to go deeper and closer quicker than we extroverts. you know why because we extroverts are come, boom 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 we 're going across the top of the waves, woohoo you know, and we don 't we don 't go deep often enough, we need to be called deep, you can show us that and so forth and 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 actually, when that happens, when you show us, that is fellowship, but it 's not just for certain personality types. The final thing I need to say and kinda take the baggage off, this is because this has sorta reoccurred in our culture and in our world, and, and I'm not saying it's a horribly bad thing, but I'm saying it's not fellowship. Um, and it's the monastic culture, you know, kind of a monastic community. That's not fellowship. You know, what monastic meaning, you pull back from the culture, you pull back from uh, being out there, and it's just us. We build the walls around us, we protect everything, and it's just us. Now, there are certain philosophies afoot with the way the culture is going that certain Christian philosophies now are saying that's what we need to do and wait our time out until the culture gets better. Then we can be a better witness. But right now, we need to protect ourselves and kind of go into this cloister kind of thing. And the thing is, is that there was a philosophy like that at the turn of the 1900s to the 20th century. And and, and a lot of people followed it. It basically said, withdraw from politics, withdraw from scholarship, just focus on your personal devotional life and the church together, the personal, you know, your your, your own church's focus and just stay in those bounds and so forth and so on. And don't, you know, don't get engaged out there in the culture and that sort of thing. Well, you look back on that and you realize what happened over the course of the last hundred years or so and you go, well, that didn't work out very well. I mean, you look at the status quo. You know, status quo is Latin for the mess we are in. And, and, and we're kind of in that mess because of partly, not entirely, but partly because the church kind of pulled out, or a lot of churches did, rather than engaging. And these people did not pull out. They invested themselves in fellowship or what, in the Greek language, I'm going to use the word because you've probably heard it ad nauseum, if you've heard, been a Christian very long from preachers like me. It's the word koinonia, okay? I remember when we first discovered that word and it was starting to be thrown around by preachers. It was the early 70s. I was pretty, uh, I was young. I was in the young end of the youth group just barely an either in or just barely out of junior high, and I was hearing this word from the older brothers and sisters, and it was sort of a word that was that circled uh, around the Christian counterculture, which was the response to the hippie counterculture, and it was like people heard this word, hey, Koinonia, man, it is far out. It just changes. It's just, it's just cosmic, man. I said, well, what does it mean? I don't know, but uh, can't you feel it? It's just amazing. Uh, but what it means is, a sense that koinonia is a sense of, of altruism toward one another. It's a sense of others first. It's a sense of we're in this together. It's a sense that you... It, it's so unique and it's so strong in all those directions that the New Testament makes it clear that it was unique in their culture and it's unique in our culture too. The author of Scripture, God... Is still intense for it to be so unique, this, this sense, this, this uh, feeling of koinonia and the experience of koinonia among ourselves that other people look at it and they see this beautiful thing and they, in their case, in the early church case, they came by the thousands. And get this, they came by the thousands even though it was dangerous to their personal livelihoods to do it. Because what they saw, they wanted. That's what koinonia is. I need some of that. I want. There's something in us, again, that longs for that. And so you have you have koinonia of the, the Holy Spirit in uh, 2 Corinthians 13, which is the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, the connection that he has with us. There's supposed to be a similar connection like that well, uh, among us. Or communion, which we'll do next week. Uh, communion, uh, the Lord's Supper is called koinonia. Or, um, you know, of the 19 times that um, it, the word koinonia is used in the New Testament. It always has to do with this deep sense of relationship between God and or his people. And there's not a dichotomy between the two. If you, have, uh, if you have a relationship with God, you do have a relationship with his people. It's just assumed. It's just seen all out through the New Testament. In fact, to get more clarity on fellowship, look at how the verses, a couple of verses later, starting in verse, four, verse 44 of Acts chapter 2 outlines and sort of explains what it is. Look at all the together words here. Everyone was filled with awe, Oh, sorry, that was 43. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, uh, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll pick up the selling their stuff later, uh, you know, just you know, put that aside in the, the calm box for a moment. But look at all this, together, to, in common, meet together. I told you last week that in verse 46 when it says meet together, it means that they had one mind. They were, they were uh, in the same mind, okay? Doesn't mean they were uh, little, miss, little Mr. Zombies, you know, little, little uh, yes women and yes men. Doesn't mean any of that. Uh, the, the New American Standard translates this word uh, better, I think, than the other translations. And it means, it says, "in uh, uh, of one mind. It means they were moving in the same direction. They had this sense of purpose. And and of, uh, uh, they had their eyes on what God was actually up to in the world. And they wanted to be a part of it. Doesn't mean they agreed on everything. Doesn't mean they were, you know, every, every opinion was the same and so forth. It just means that they were moving in that same direction. But there's a sense that this... This fellowship creates this togetherness. That's the word that's used. Now, the word togetherness isn't something that these people invented. It's not something that the church invented to try and get you to do something that you don't want to do on Sunday morning. That's not what it is. It's something that, that was happening before. It's something that happens in your family. And what the New Testament makes clear is one of the, one of the favorite metaphors in the New Testament is the church as family. And the reason for that is not because, um, uh, you know, we want to create it or we want it. But it's it's not Adam and Eve that were the first family. Human beings weren't the first family. God himself was the first family. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, over the course of the summer, I ran into a uh, book that has been out about 10 years. I just didn't know it had been out. It's full of all kinds of compelling, helpful information about what church is. And the title of the book is called When Church Was a Family. And it's written by a a Biola and Talbot Seminary professor named Joseph Hellerman. And I'm going to pick out snippets of it. It's been out 10 years. It's not a bestseller. Hadn't heard of it before. A little bit maybe academic unless you're loving to dive into this kind of stuff. Unless you're like a Bible nerd. I don't know anybody like that. But I, I... It's just just so powerful, powerful things that he says in here. And I'm going to pull out some things. And and, and a lot of what he says in there about what we are as church, as God's family, as Jesus' family, a lot of what he says, it it just floats down like a feather, like, ah, yeah, yeah. And then it it blows up in your face. And this is one of those quotes. You're going to love it. Here we go. God is family who makes family. Have you ever thought about God that way? He's a family, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he's created family, just like he puts the image of God in you and me, he puts the image of God in the church, in his family. Think about that. God is family who makes family. Neither Paul nor Jesus can be cited in support of a life priority list that generates a false dichotomy between commitment to God and commitment to his group in order to stick natural family relations somewhere in between. So, this is the formula. I put all this on one screen because I wanted you to see this formula. This is the typical way a lot of people think, even Christians, about church today. They think God's first, my family's second, third is church, fourth is others. So, you see how we stick our families between God and church. But he's saying something's different. For both Jesus and Paul, commitment to God was commitment. To God's group, this is where it starts to kind of blow up in your face. Such a outlook generates rather different list of priorities, one that more accurately reflects the strong group perspective of the early Christians. And here's the formula: God's family, then my family, then others. God's family first. That's, that's exactly how the New Testament plays it out. That if I am a Christian, if I am a Jesus follower, therefore, I've got, I'm a part of his family. And when I accept him, I accept them. When, if I'm into him, I'm into them. There's no distinction in the New Testament whatsoever. That doesn't mean that we're all, again, the same or, 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 or you know that we're just a bunch of zombies or something. Doesn't mean that at all. In fact, it's just like a regular, a, a, another family or, or when, a, when two people get married and they start a family, right? we all have family values, right? We hear about family values all the time. Hopefully, if you're both Christians, and hopefully you are when you get married, but if you're, you're, you know, when two Christians come together, they have hopefully the same, you know, top-tier values, following Christ and raising their kids in the Lord and that sort of thing. Hopefully that's in case. But then there's all these other values, you know? Like, whose job is it to change the light bulbs anyway, you know? Well, I, so-and-so already did that. Who takes care of the money? That's a big one. Right? I mean, all these values are kind of clash, you know, sometimes, right? And And, and yet... What's clear from the New Testament is they have four basic top tier values. These are the values that they they apply to families. There's the values they apply to Jesus' family. It's all the same. Here it goes. In the New Testament, it says, We share stuff with one another. We share our hearts with one another. We stay, embrace pain, and grow with one another. Family is about more than wife, the husband, and the kids. (laughs) It is about that, but it's about more than that. It's about this. It's about us. It's about why we're here and what we're up to. You see, the Bible talks about it over and over and over again. The New Testament especially. In fact, here's, here's a newsflash. The New Testament seems to imply you cannot fully experience the love of God without experiencing the love of his family and expressing the love in his family. How about that? You don't believe me? Let's go. Let's go to a passage that, I, you know, I, I'm sorry to... I think this is the third week in a row I brought this passage up, but... It's from 1 John. First, John. John was one of Jesus' early adopters. You know, he sat next to Jesus at the Last Supper. He was at the cross when Jesus died. He took care of Jesus' mother until the end of her life, Mary. And, and, and that's not in the Bible, but we know that from other sources. But, but he was a man who started off when, G, when he first adopted following Jesus. He was a rager, right? I mean, he was, he was kind of like what we see going on in our culture today. I want my rights. And kind of ticked off with people who weren't on his side. And, and, and he completely transformed to the other side. To the side of love. To the side of deferring to other people. I mean, he, remember, he and James were the guys that came to Jesus and said, we want to sit at your right hand and the left hand. We don't care about these other ten guys. We want in. Okay? You owe us kind of, kind of. I don't know if they had that idea, but they sent their mother, of all things. So maybe he was kind of wimpy, too. I don't know. But... But then he, he's the one, This guy, you know, he and James, you want us to call down fire in that stinking village for just kind of telling us to leave, you know? Jesus had to rebuke them all the time. But by the time he, Jesus raises from the dead, and from the, by the time he gets to his old age when he's writing First John, this letter to a church, the most important thing that he keeps saying is you gotta love, you gotta love, you gotta love, you gotta love. And we hear the word love and we, we almost we almost just kind of skim over it because it's so squishy, right? I mean, so warm, fuzzy, and it should feel good. It should be warm and fuzzy. But, you know, something in us longs for something more, but the something more is in there. The something more is in, here's another Greek word you've heard, ad nauseum, but please don't let it mess around with how invaluable and important it is, agape love. Agape love is the, kind, is the word that the New Testament writers adopted because there wasn't a good word in, in the Greek language or the Roman Latin world to describe the kind of love Jesus was talking about when he sat with his disciples and gave him the new commandment and said, hey, I want you to love one another as I've loved you. And guess what's going to happen? Then the world will know you're my disciples. And what he means by that is then they're going to come, they want some. That's the kind of love it's talking about. And, And to kind of prove that, John in his letter to this church just circles around that. In fact, it's sort of reaches an apex in this passage I keep referring to in John chapter 4, uh, 13 to 20. I encourage you to read that all together, but I'm just going to pick out the highlights uh, so that we can kind of move through it this morning. Look at this. It says, verse 13 says, how, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us, and he has given us his spirit. So we know that we're, we're living in him. We're doing, we're doing the Jesus thing. We're living the Jesus way when we see the Spirit at work in us, but you're not going to just see it if it's just you. You need somebody else to tell you what they're seeing, and you need to tell them what you're seeing. Secondly, in verse 16, it says, God is love, and whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. We, and then in verse 19, we love because he first loved us. He showed us the way. And then verse 20, whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. That's the one that we kind of dropped the bomb last week. It's like, whoa, that's kind of blunt. And John goes, yeah, okay. So that's where he's coming from. But what I want to do here this morning is sort of reverse engineer the thought process. Let's start with verse 20. And this, you know, if you don't love your brother or sister, if you hate your brother or sister, you're a liar, okay. So if you say you love God, but look at it this way. Loving God and disregarding his people or his family. So, disregarding is another translation of the word hate in that text. You can say that. Disregarding his people is a lie. Is a lie. So, a lie is what? Well, the Ten Commandments tell us that's a sin. Secondly, God lives in us if we love. So, we know that if we're loving out, that God is living in us because he's put his love in us. Why? Because God is love. God only lives where there is love. And fourthly, Love in the body of Christ or the family of Jesus is proof the Holy Spirit is in us. When there's love, when there's action taking for the regard of others, when there's lifting up for for caring for others that we see here, and we're just saying, let's keep going, let's see more. But that is a sign that Christ, you know, the Holy Spirit is in fact in us because that's not natural and normal that's something that happens in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That kind of communion, that kind of community, which, by the way, community is a better word than fellowship, I think. That's the kind of community that happens within God the Father, and since he's stamped not only as his individuals with his image, but his church, his family with, his, with uh, uh, his image, that's how we can tell, okay, there's the Holy Spirit, because it's not natural for me to love you that way, and it's not natural for you to love me that way. it it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to do it so you can put your finger on it and say, there it is. Now, that means that your church and your commitment to that church is a very significant thing in terms of your spiritual life. Doesn't mean that, uh, you know, the church does the saving. We know that's all on God, okay? But it does mean that when Christ saves your soul and sets you free, he sets you free within and sending out from his family. It's all part and parcel of the same thing, which leads us to you know, some common experiences today. And w- what I'm about to say, uh, I want to be real clear. So I'm going to start off by saying what I'm not saying. What I'm not saying is if you've ever left a church that you have sinned. I'm not saying that. Or if you ever leave this church that you have sinned. I'm not saying that. There are, are uh, some good reasons. There's some really bad reasons. There are some sinful reasons like complete self-centeredness. You know, that's a bad reason. Um, or you've, you know, left the trail of broken things, and you're just going to go do this somewhere else. That's, that's not right. But there, there's, there's, uh, this, there, there are probably some good reasons to move on from churches in different parts of our life, but local churches I'm speaking of now. And, and, and you know, the problem, though, is, is that we are terrible interpreters of those reasons, but that doesn't mean to say that the Lord can't show you and that that hasn't happened. That's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about is something that's a phenomenon that's starting to happen more and more and more among people who say they're Christians today in our world. And it has to do with this sort of schismatic culture we live in. Have you noticed how the culture drives us apart all the time? And it forces us into ourselves. What does sin do? You've heard me say it a thousand times, well, uh, ten times. Sin, from the very beginning, from when they ate the fruit off the tree, sin relentlessly drives us into ourselves. And what that does is it breaks us apart. And that's why this is such a big deal. And that's why it's such a big deal to God. And so what I'm saying is, is that phenomenon today that we see people saying, well, you know what? I don't need Jesus. or I mean, I, I, I have Jesus. I don't need his church. I don't need his family. Uh, I, I, I've, got, I've got friends. I've got Jesus That's really all I need. I do go to church once in a while, you know, on Christmas and Easter, but I've got about five of them I picked, just like my favorite stores at the shopping mall. You know, that, that is a lie. And that is, therefore, a sin, if a person, in fact, truly is a Christian. In fact, let let me tell you what John, I think, is really getting to the bottom line, because he's coming in our face on this thing. He's saying, you and I can't love God and break fellowship with his people. You have to be committed to some local expression of that church. And secondly, for Christians, breaking fellowship against, is sin against God and the per, his purpose for my life. And, I, you know, that's just the way the system works. It's not about me saying, you know, you got to do this again. This isn't about us creating something that people don't want to do. This is not about a human creation. This is about God and the Holy Spirit, and Jesus, what Jesus did when he died on the cross, and he, he, he uh, rose from the dead, and then he ascended into heaven after telling his disciples to go into the world and make disciples, but do it together. He's the one that started it all, and that's why this is such a big deal in that regard. Now, let me just uh, kind of play this out to, to, to say that, you know, in this culture, in, in our world, uh, what we experience is kind of a, uh, a, when we experience the love of God, as John says in John chapter 4, what we realize is, first of all, it, it, it's a reckless kind of love. This agape love is reckless. Have you noticed that? We're going to sing that in a minute. It's re- I mean, it's reckless for God. He, he took his love and stuck it right in the middle of us as individuals and as the middle of the church. He put it in our hands. It was us. He, God took the risk. That's reckless, man. I mean, he, he had no idea. Well, he had an idea, but I, you, you, we could have just dissed it, and a lot of people do. We could have just rejected it. And all, that's reckless. And that's what John means when he says God first loved us. So it may not make human sense for us to love other people that way, but because he did it for us, we got no excuse than to do it for each other. That's because God is love. And if you want God, then you're gonna have to have an environment of love and experience it. And it's way beyond and it's bigger and it's up above anything else that's going on in the scrambly culture or that scrambly culture from the early days of the church. It's way above that, and it's way beyond any of that, and it just lifts people up. You know, I'm going to give you a homework assignment here, and this is going to be easy. It, well, sort of. It's a movie. You watch a movie. Uh, it's a Christian movie, though. So, but it's well written. It really is. It's got good dialogue. It's great. It actually follows the last days of Paul. It's called Paul, Apostle of the Christ. Paul, Apostle of the Christ, got some great actors in it, uh, Jim Caviezel. And it, it describes, it's, it's not so, a story that every point of it connects with what happened in the book of Acts, because Paul's last days aren't in the book of Acts. He was in prison twice. This is his second uh, imprisonment, and you can kind of get, it, it's trying to, uh, you know, using Scripture, trying to make the point of what his last days probably were like, and what was happening in the church in Rome at that time. And here's an interesting factoid, and I'll, I'll say this before I say that. It's probably PG or may, maybe PG-13, so parents just be aware of that, okay? Here's a Christian movie. Let's watch this. Ooh, look, that guy's burning. That guy's burning from a hook. Anyway, um, so, but, but it's a powerful, powerful movie, and here's why. This is, this is how powerful it is. James Faulkner, who plays Paul in that movie... When he read the script and he started filming, he was not a believer. He did not. He, he decided, I'm just. This looks like a good script. I'm going to act it and do it well. But the more he got into it, the more he saw what the Bible actually says Christians did, and what happened in their lives. And the more he saw what Paul did and what happened in his life, he gave his life to Christ in the middle of shooting this movie. So, I'm just saying, it describes the love of God in the midst of it horrible circumstances in a way that it, it, you, you'll you'll remember it. And, you know, spoiler alert. I hope it's not a spoiler alert because if you've read the Bible, it's not a spoiler alert. <laughs> the end for Paul's not that great. But, but it is that great in the way it happens and what happens to the church. Okay? So, I, I mean, I'm just, that's, the expression of God's love in this world. And that's, see, that's the wonderful thing about Jesus. It's a wonderful thing about the New Testament because it just doesn't tell us the what. You will do this. It doesn't just tell us, you know, to brush our teeth and to eat our beans and to so forth and so on. It doesn't just do that. It tells us the whys of why we should be compelled to do it. And I just want to end this then with two whys uh, and then it's some final thoughts. Okay, two wise that come up in verse 46 of Acts chapter two. We looked at it again, but let's look at, or looked at it before, but let's look at it again. The, there's two phrases in here, one at the beginning and one at the end. The first one is, uh, this is the New International Version. Every day they continued to meet in the te- together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So every day, they're doing this stuff every day. It's not just that they meet together, it's that they are doing all the stuff from this sentence and the next sentence and all the stuff to the end. That's how the structure of this, this sentence goes, actually. So they're doing all this every day, and you go, man, what would compel them to do all of this every single day? Well, they're living in a culture that's beating the tire out of them or trying to, right? But they're living as resilient people in it. Could it be that they saw that that was the counter- to what they were experiencing and not just the counter, that it would take them to a whole new way of living until Jesus came back. You see, that's what it is. It's like the big monster that's living among us right now, the autonomous self. That we've convinced ourselves, not us per se as Christians or people, that everybody, but the general population, the culture has convinced ourselves that somehow we, you know, the best way to live is to just be an autonomous unit, to be an autonomous self, and just make sure that I've got everything in line and, and all the ducks in the row and everything just the way it ought to be for me. And my truth is my truth, your truth is your. That is incredibly reductive, destructive to the soul kind of way to live. And so we need healing when we come in here. Whether it be with the schismatic values that we come in here with, we need healing. So Jesus' family is is a place of healing. It's also a place where we grow. It's it's the way God set it up. It's the way Jesus set it up, his family, is how we grow in our faith, in our life, in our learning, in our experience, in our joy, in our hope, in all of that. That's, That's how it happens. In fact, one more quote from Hellerman. As he describes this growth process, again, in a kind of feather floats down, blows up in your face kind of way. Watch this. Spiritual formation or discipleship, you know, living for learning to live like Jesus, occurs primarily in the context of community or a a good translation for fellowship. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding, and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and to their fellow human beings. This is especially the case for those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Have you ever had that in a church? No, we wouldn't have that here, okay. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible for genuine progress in the Christian's life. Okay, here's the bomb. People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. It is a simple but profound biblical reality that we both grow and thrive together or we do not grow very much at all. That's the nature of family. And that's why we need each other to experience that healing. And I think these people saw that. And what you and I see and what compels us is that, you know what? This is the place where I can kind of take this stuff that's busted and broken. and I'm going to experience the love of Christ. And people are going to help me live that out and apply it to my life. And then pretty soon you're able to do that for somebody else. And it's just this amazing thing that happens. The second why has to do with the end of chapter, uh, verse uh, 46 of Acts chapter 2. It's the word generous hearts. Day by day attending the temple. This is the English standard version now. Together and breaking bread with their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The NIV says sincere, but I think far more, and not just me, but people who know what they're talking about, think that generous is a far better translation of that word. Generous hearts. What does that mean? It means thinking of others and saying, you know, I've got some time, just tell me what's going on with you. You know, how's it going with you? Hey, I found this Bible verse, this, this scripture. Came, look at this. This is great. This is exactly what we're talking about. Ah, yeah, that's it. That's generosity right there. You see, and, and you, you saw earlier the way they expressed their generosity was selling their stuff. Okay, we're, we're not going to suggest that this morning. So take lump in your throat. Don't let it go to your brain. Just all down. We're not suggesting we do that. That was not something the Bible says is a command. It's just a description of what they did. That's all. But it does illustrate generosity, being generous hearts. And why would you do that? Because it's in Jesus' family community that saves us from ourselves. It saves us from that self-centeredness because that self-centeredness, that driving into ourself, it can mess us up. And when I say it saves us from ourselves, I know somebody might go, wait, 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 only Jesus saves. That's true. But in terms of sanctification, that kind of salvation, of learning to live like Jesus, that kind of salvation, he uses the church every single time. His family, that's what he uses every single time. To, to kind of show this and prove this, a couple of chapters later, there's a, this crazy, crazy story. It's called Ananias and Sapphira. You ever heard that one? If you've read your Bible, you have. It's not one we deal with. Preachers don't preach on it very often. But here's the story. Ananias comes. He's one of these ones that sold his property. He had a significant amount of property or something. He was a wealthy person, sold the property, brings it to Peter so that the church can use it to meet people's needs. But he pretends that the portion he's bringing was the full price of the property when he kept some for himself. And Peter says uh, to him when he comes, he says, is that that your property? Or is that the price of the property? He said, yep, that's it. He says, you know what? Peter says, you could have kept the money for yourself that's not a problem but what you just did is lie to God and you've lied to his church so guess what I hear the footsteps of the guys that are coming to take your body away because you're going to drop dead boom down and a little couple hours later his wife Sapphira comes she says hey I'm looking for Ananias I, I bet you are He says, is this, Peter says, is this the price of the property you got? Because your husband told me, yeah, okay, that is. Well, they were in cahoots, obviously, because she says the same price. He says, okay, I hear the footsteps coming for you, too. The the people come and take your body away. Boom, she drops. She's dead. What's the point of that? That's a crazy story. The point is not that next time we pass the bags, you're dropping dead if you don't put something in. It is not. (laughs) Whew. I mean, what it is, is you've lied to God. Yes, that's the typical, well, they lied to God. But I've lied to God. But in these early days when the, Christ, when the church, Jesus' family was forming, it was a huge deal, not just to lie to God, but to inflict wrong on his family. Why? Because you know what this is? This isn't just his family. This is sacred family. It's a violation of sacredness to not be that in the family. not we, And it's not about being perfect and, oh my gosh, if I make a mistake, God's going to strike me dead. Not that. Not even close. It's about whether or not I disregard, as John says, his family. And you know, one of the wonderful things about Scripture is; it tends to reveal for us exactly how to do it, and it takes the things that we think are bad words and turns them into some of them into good words, and some of the things that we think are good things, and shows us, you know what, that's more self-centered than we thought. And and I had that happen this summer when I was uh, sitting listening to another pastor. We visited, Sharon and I visited some churches, and and I did a bad, bad thing on one of the times. I instead of listening, it was a good sermon. But he mentioned a verse, and I saw a word, and I, instead of doing that, I, I went on a kind of a word study rabbit trail in my Greek and my, my Bible program on my phone. But you don't, don't do that when I'm preaching. But anyway, so I did this, and what I discovered was this verse, Acts 1-8, that begins the whole story of the church and begins the whole history of the church, where Jesus says, you will be, receive power, and you'll be my witnesses. You'll receive the Holy Spirit, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But the word that caught my attention is the word witness. I had to see what that word meant. What does it mean to be a witness? Is it just evangelism? Is it, and the fact of the matter is it's not. You know what the Greek word for that is? Martours. Okay, now, I know that says matures, but that's a Greek transliteration of the Greek. It means martyrs. It means giving of yourself. It means Sacrificing yourself. You know, we, we most think of martyrs being, you know, I'm dead, I'm just going to die for the cause, which is important. That's a reality thing. But it also means witness. It also means being a martyr in the sense of being willing to sacrifice, whether it be time or resources or love or care, just for somebody else. That's what this means. And that's how the gospel is going to spread. That's how it's going to change your life, it's saying. Because you see, if I keep it all for myself, what am I doing? I'm robbing God. I'm robbing his family. If I keep all myself for myself, I'm robbing myself. But what the New Testament says is, no, when you give away, you're still maybe losing your stuff, losing, you know, giving a part of yourself away, giving your love away, giving your time away. But guess what? It's not, it's not demoralizing like being robbed. It's invigorating. It's enchanting. It's, brand, it's new you sense the Holy Spirit alive in your life and you start to see him in the people that your church family with and it's just amazing, amazing thing. So I'm gonna call a band out here speaking of people who sacrifice their time for all of us. And as they come out, I just wanna say one more thing. That's the, th- that's the kind of Jesus family that he wants to use to change our lives. And there are, there are just four real quick final thoughts I want to give you to ask you to suggest you do. And if it helps, take a picture of it because it's not going to be up there very long because I'm going to go through it quick. But life groups, the reason we keep pushing life groups is because that's where Jesus' family becomes his community, the fellowship becomes real, okay? That's where it becomes real. It, 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 sometimes, you know, God will touch you and use you on Sunday morning, but if you just go off as an autonomous unit, it's not going to really last very long. It's not going to change. You need people around you. To, you help them. You lock arms with them. They lock arms with you, and they help you on the path together. That's why we do this. Uh, secondly, find somebody around here. If you're skeptical, find somebody around here and just ask them. Just say, "Let's have community conversations going on. Let's have, you know, uh, life conversations within uh, Jesus family here at Easter's Church." Say, so, "Has God used this church to grow and change your life?" And see what kind of answers you get. And, and finally, ask yourself. So has God used uh, this, stretched me and grown me relationally at this church? And if so, if not, why not? And, 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 and fourthly, if you're not yet a part of that, if you're not yet committed, you're not, let, let's put, use the word we've been using, devoted, ask us this week to show you if, uh, you know, what we've been saying is really true today. If it's, if, if it's compelling enough for you to, to be devoted to That's all. And I'm going to pray for you this week, all of us together. And as you you go along and and begin to practice these things, and uh, I'm going to start praying for you right now as we pray together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your presence and your love for us. Thank you for this church family. Where I see so much of that, your love expressed. And I see a generous heart that's growing and growing and growing. We'll talk about that next week. But Lord, I just pray that you take us further. Take us into the space, into the outer recesses, into the stratosphere of what you want to do so that nothing, nothing can blow us off as a church family, taking care of one another and taking care of people that come to us, taking care of people and loving people that don't come to us, that we encounter in our daily lives. Nothing can blow us off from being your people and being like Jesus to others and growing and loving and experiencing your love in a deeper and more powerful way every day throughout all of life, regardless of the circumstances. We love you, Jesus. Thank you that this is your vision and your desire for our lives. And again, we devote ourselves to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.